0: sequence
1: star space nuts
0: space nuts night report feels good hello and thank you for joining us this is the podcast we like to call space nuts uh, my name's Andrew Dunkley, your host and joining me uh, once again is astronomer at large Fred Watson hello Fred. Hey, Andrew. Good to be with you again. It seems like a week. It does. (laughs) In astronomical terms, that could be any length of time, really. Now, uh, today we've got a lot to get through. We're doing a series of double takes here. Uh, We're going to talk uh, firstly about the Australian Space Agency. They've finally decided where they're going to put it. And that's because nobody wants to live there. Uh, the CSIRO's involvement in Voyager 2, which has made the news this week because it's um, finally left um, our solar system, technically speaking, but not the influence of the sun. It's very complicated. We'll get to that. Uh, the Chinese Chang'e mission, will give you an update on that. And the winds of Mars, we'll even try and let you hear them, which may not be easy, but we'll give it a go. And we've got a, a question uh, going back to a podcast we did on uh, Comet Wirtanen, the Christmas Comet, they're calling it. Uh, this is the green one that should be visible fairly soon, if not already. Um, somebody's asked a question about uh, the fact that it's surrounded in plasma. So we'll find out what's going on there. Uh, but first, Fred, the Australian Space Agency, where
1: are they going to put it? Well, so that was announced um, yesterday, our time uh, here in Australia. The uh, Australian Space Agency will be located in the fine city of Adelaide in South Australia, which I have to say uh, was not really a surprise to anybody, I think. Uh, Several other cities put in bids. I think perhaps one of the strongest came from Canberra, um, the the federal capital. But uh, Adelaide has a long history of... Uh, connection with space, because of course South Australia is the home of the Woomera base, which, when I was growing up in the 50s, was uh, a household word. Woomera was where all the rockets were being tested, and it was a very exciting place. Mm. Uh, and, and, and there for are those,
0: other... those uh, listening overseas who uh, haven't heard the word Woomera. It's actually an Aboriginal uh, kind of weapon. It's used to launch
1: spears to give them more velocity and distance. So yeah, that's, that's right. It's called Woomera. Indeed, that's right. Mm. Um, and so that um, uh, that that gave South Australia a, a head start back in the 50s and 60s. Um, uh, but there's also a, a, a strong contingent in the academic world in uh, in South Australia, as well as a lot of startup industries. But I think the thing that might have actually tipped it over the line, Andrew, uh, is the fact that the uh, the First, Australia. Is actually that- the first? He's certainly the Australian astronaut who has flown the most. Uh, another Andrew, um, uh, Andy. Andy Thomas. That's the man. Yeah, Andy Thomas. Yeah, uh, he's from South Australia,
0: of course. Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. He was so, in this uh, region a few years ago, and we got to have a chat to him
1: uh, on my former radio station. And uh, yeah, lovely bloke. Yes, he is, and, and in fact, that was probably the same time that uh, he came and uh, gave the... That's the right, lecture that's at, right. Uh, ...at the Signing Spring yeah. uh, which is thanks to Marnie, who made all that work. Hmm. <laughs> I'm only saying that because she just made a waving sound there to sort of <laughs> indicate. I heard that. It sounded like the winds of Mars. Yes, it did, yes, the winds of Mars. So, so yeah, um, it was a major... Uh, you know, a major coup for us to have Andy Thomas. But Andy is a is a, a passionate uh, Adelaidean, uh, and I think he wrote a very strong um, case in a, in a document uh, to say uh, Adelaide should have the should host the Australian Space Agency, and the government said yes. Well, he knows his stuff, so I suppose he'd have um, yes. a fair bit of
0: influence. And uh, yeah, so what form will it take? Is it just going to be an office block?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Pretty well. Uh, and, and not even that. I bet it's just a floor on an office because they're, they're employing a staff of 20. Wow. Uh, so it's it's really an administrative thing. Um, they have funds about $41 million uh, to distribute uh, in, in a way that will help to expand the Australian space and, uh, space industry. The, the figures are that the space industry worldwide is worth somewhere between $350 and $400 billion and 400000000000 dollars Uh, these are Australian dollars. Um, And we have a share of that, something like 1%. Uh, It's roughly, uh, you know, something like $4 billion a year that's earned in Australia from the space industry. That's probably more than most people uh, would expect, but it includes things like communications and uh, satellite technology and lots of things of that sort. So that uh, figure uh, is hoped to be expanded by a factor of three, so that within a few years we'll be talking about twelve billion dollars, and that's the job of the space agency to actually nurture those startups and, um, you know, put everything in a common framework and uh, hopefully turn it into this global player that Australia wants to be. Which converts to
0: about one hundred and twenty bucks US. Yeah, um, yeah, it's exciting, and and we've uh, you know we've certainly got to get into this. Uh, in, into this world, uh, literally, the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the space race, because um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it w- there are so many players that uh, are involved now. Uh, you've got India, you've got China, you've got Japan, you've got um, all, the, all the big players, obviously, but uh, it's, it's the future. It is the future. We're, we're not going to sort of stay here on Earth. We're going to start getting out there into the solar system and doing other things in time. So we really need to be a part of it.
1: We do. And we are, but we want to be a bigger part, of
0: course. Indeed. All right. Well, we'll watch uh, the Australian Space Agency with interest, of course, and let you know what happens next, what sort of floor tiles they choose, that kind of thing. Very exciting stuff. Now, uh, let's let's move on to something that's super exciting because uh, I was a kid when this all started. And, of course, now, 41 years down the track, Voyager 2, which I'm told was launched before Voyager 1, uh, it was. Has, has left uh, the solar system and has entered interstellar space. And there's an Australian connection to this story as well.
1: Very strong one, that's right. Uh, so you're quite right. Uh, Voyager 2 was launched on the 20th of August 1977, and it was um, uh, just over a fortnight before Voyager 1 was launched. Um, but that means that... Um, Voyager 2, I think, is one of the... It may be the oldest space mission still operating. Actually, I'm not quite sure about that because the Pioneers predated it mm. and they two are leaving. Uh, Pioneer 10 and 11 are, too, are also leaving the solar system. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Voyager 2, um, an absolutely epic mission. It's basically told us much of what we know uh, or certainly what we knew in the second uh, or the last quarter of the 20th century about the, the gas giant planets, um, Saturn and Jupiter. Jupiter. Jupiter, uh, Uranus and Neptune, but not necessarily in that order. (laughs) Uh, So those planets were were first explored in detail by the two Voyager probes. Voyager 2 took in them all, actually. Uh, It was the Grand Tour mission, which um, was basically dictated because of the alignment of the planets at the time. But now, as you say, it's um, leaving at least one component of the Sun's influence, Uh, So uh, it's going through what's called the heliopause. And the heliopause is that uh, boundary between the area that's dominated by the sun's magnetic field. uh, And when you cross that, you're in a region that's dominated by the magnetic field of the galaxy, the interstellar magnetic field. And you can sense this with... Uh, you know, with plasma detectors and with magne- uh, magnetometers and all of that sort of thing, that the spacecraft is still both functioning. They're sending data back to Earth. They have power su- supplies that will probably go on for maybe even another 15 years or so. Um, they are little nuclear power plants. Uh, and so we know that, um, that the magnetic environment has changed and Voyager 2 has crossed the heliopause. Mm-hmm. Now, um, just to t- temper that slightly, Uh, Voyager 1 which is further away because it moved faster uh, that crossed the heliopause I think in 2012 Um, but it it, it crossed it a number of times um, because the heliopause is a movable feast it's something that you know changes its shape Uh, and so uh, one minute you're inside it, the next minute you're outside it, the next minute you're inside it again because it swelled a bit. And so there was a period when this, this crossing was not something that happened on one day. It took a period of months before Voyager 1 was definitely outside the Helio, uh, heliopause and, and when that...
0: Sort of happened. They picked up some anomalies in the uh, telemetry, didn't they? And they didn't really understand what it was at the time. And then they put two and two together. Is that how it happened?
1: Uh, I th- uh, um, are you? Is Boy, that? You, when, I'm sure are you thinking of? Pioneer 10. Oh, maybe it's Pioneer. 10, was yeah. was in the wrong place. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that was eventually solved. That's another kind of worms that we won't open up. Okay. But yes, there was a. There was a um, The thermal properties of the spacecraft were not properly accounted for when when they were looking at its orbit. So it it actually had accelerations that hadn't been taken into account. And it wasn't that our understanding of gravity was going on. Uh, Just talking of gravity, though, that's a point I wanted to make in that, um, yes, it's crossing the heliopause. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's beyond the sun's uh, sphere of influence because the gravitational pull of the sun is still still being felt by the Voyager spacecraft uh, and extends much, much further away. And in fact, some of us would have think of the boundary of the solar system as being the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud is a cloud of comets, uh, proto-comets, that um, it's where comets come from, uh, which is a, a much greater distance than the Voyagers are um, and you know almost kind of halfway to the next nearest star. Uh, Voyager 2 is 16 light hours away or about 18 billion kilometres and why is there an Australian connection to the story? Because Voyager 2 is heading south, it is actually um, leaving the solar system but uh, south of the plane of the solar system. So that means it's south of the Earth's equator. It's uh, a region which is inaccessible to the big radio telescopes in the northern hemisphere. And so the Parks Radio Dish uh, in uh, in parks in New South Wales and the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex at, uh, at Tidbinbilla, uh, they are where the signals are coming back from. So it's a strong australian component indeed yes when we're not playing cricket in the dish we can listen
0: to voyager uh, which is fantastic and um, it's just been one awesome mission that uh, has lasted a lot longer than i'm sure anyone anticipated and uh, you know still getting signals still getting information still learning so much from from what was actually an afterthought Uh, these missions were sort of uh, something that came up in a back room by one bloke who went hang on a minute We can do this, and voila, there it goes. Yep. Mm. All right, Um, you're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, Back to the show. Roger, your lot here, also. Space nuts. Next up, Fred. We're going to look at the uh, latest with the Chinese uh, Changi missions. Chang'e four, uh, which is headed to the far side of the moon. Where, where are things up to? I notice it's made the news this
1: week. It has, yeah. That's because the spacecraft has now been launched, so it's now on its way to the moon. Uh, I think it was launched nearly a week ago, end of last week sort of time. Um, It is uh, not on a rapid trajectory to the moon. It will not land on the surface until the end of January. So it's got a fairly leisurely progress that uh, is being followed in the meantime. Uh, But of course, this mission is um, very interesting because it's the first lunar lander that will touch down on the far side of the Moon, and it's going to a really interesting place, the uh, the South Pole Aitken Basin, uh, which is near the South Pole of the Moon. It's a big dent in the lunar crust probably caused by an impact in the very early history of the solar system uh, and so you know it's, it's possibly a place where there might be really interesting minerals and all kinds of um, evidence of what happens when you get a big impact of that kind uh, so uh, it will uh, touch down as I said at the end of January. Um, as we, you and I have discussed already it already has a communications satellite waiting for it mm. uh, this is a spacecraft in orbit around one of the Lagrange points on the far side of the moon so it uh, is in orbit around nothing but that uh, is in uh, such a trajectory that it can always relay the signals to and from changi when it is uh, on the backside of the moon and and sheltered from or shielded from terrestrial radio interference and that's one of the reasons for going there actually the uh, the spacecraft uh, the spacecraft's mission Is partly to characterise what's called the radio environment on the far side of the Moon. Um, In other words, you know, check how radio quiet the far side of the Moon really is, because that one day might be the location of a major radio astronomy observatory. You've got the most radio quiet place in the locality. Uh, of the earth the earth is beaming out radio signals very copiously but if you can get rid of them all by putting the moon in the way uh, then you know it, it's a good thing uh, but the other thing that i like is it's carrying a lunar mini biosphere experiment which consists of seeds ah. um, to try and grow potatoes i wonder where they got that idea <laughs> uh, i'm sure they found it from somewhere and, and something called uh, arabidopsis which i think might be cress i'm not sure about that do okay. you know that
0: i have heard of it but i couldn't tell yeah, you
1: yeah so uh it's you know it's about um the study of the respiration of the seeds the way they breathe and photosynthesis the, the way they turn light into energy uh, on the moon that's the um uh, that's the experiment director uh, speaking to the chinhua news news agency so it's um very very interesting i mean one of the issues on the Moon is this huge range of temperatures. It's something like minus 100, and, uh, 100 minus 170 to plus 130 or is it the other way around? I can't remember. It, it's an enormous range of temperatures Uh, Whereas the mini biosphere has to remain within the range of one to 30 degrees. uh, And uh, that's going to be a bit of a challenge. So I think they'll they'll basically uh, uh, have quite a, um, you know, quite an interesting experiment on their hands. And I look forward to seeing what the results are. So it's yeah.
0: Very all exciting. You now I'm glad, that, and as I said before, with uh, all these new players, he's he's one uh, doing uh, something extraordinary, and that some, something that hasn't been done before. And of course, they're they're not going to quit there. They're looking at um, Changi Five next year. I yep. think so. Uh, they're going to keep on keeping on. I think they're still planning to put uh, people on the on the moon. The Chinese, yeah, that's
1: that's the long term uh, plan. Yeah, Chang'e five and six, I think, are designed. So these are the next ones in the sequence. Are designed to to bring back uh, samples of lunar rock and soil here mm. to Earth. Yeah,
0: never been done before. No, of course, there uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, did I tell you about that story where uh, each state in the U.S. got a piece of moon rock from uh, from the Apollo missions? And they um, they've lost some, so they've they've started nationwide search. Well, the state yeah. by state search to see if they can.
1: And you find, find what out it mm. yeah
0: yeah. Where, where's me rock? Yeah. Uh, now uh, we're going to move straight along to um, another fascinating place and my favourite place in the entire universe, if not um, yeah, well the entire universe. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, this is Mars. And, of course, uh, Mars has been in the news because, uh, well, the InSight lander has done exactly that, landed and started um, sending back some really interesting stuff, Fred.
1: Yeah, so you remember we spoke about this in some detail a few weeks ago. The InSight lander is really designed to probe the, the interior of Mars. So one of the uh, instrument packages it carries is a seismometer, to measure vibrations in the in the surface of Mars. That has not yet been deployed, though. It is still on the spacecraft. It, it will be deployed, I think, in about a month or so when they've worked out what the best place to put it is going to be mm-hmm. uh, to pick up sa- the, the, the sounds of Mars. But meanwhile, it's still on the spacecraft, and it turns out that uh, it's listening to the wind on Mars. Uh, the seismometry experiment is led actually by professor tom pike from imperial college in london and he's made the comment that the solar panels on the lander's sides are perfect acoustic receivers so they sort of vibrate slightly as the wind uh, the martian wind passes over them and because the seismometer is still on board the spacecraft and not deployed on the soil it listens it, it can pick up the sound of the of the solar panels was, and was so that we,
0: unexpected
1: yeah it might have been yeah it's pro- 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 it probably wasn't unexpected but it's probably not something that was shouted about too loudly just in uh, case just in case it didn't work mm. uh, but we now have recordings of this because um uh, we've um, you know that this has now been um, broadcast or issued on the on the airwaves of the of the um uh, internet, if I can mix my metaphors grossly, then... why
0: not? But uh, look, I'm going to try and share that sound with us now and hope that it's uh, loud enough to be picked up. So here we go. This is the wind of Mars. <laughs>
1: That's what it sounds like. Sounds like wind. It sounds like the digestive processes of a wombat to me. Well Well, I was um,
0: yeah, I was (laughs) listening to that too and thought that they must have had a Martian rabbit or something nearby chewing on some cress because yeah. uh, it, it certainly had that munchy sound about it. But that's what yeah. it sounds like.
1: It's great. Uh, the, uh, we have to, you know, give the, um, the disclaimer that they've lifted the, the tone by two octaves to make it audible because it's, I think it's fairly low frequency sounds that we're hearing there. But they've been lifted. And yeah, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, I think what's even more interesting is going to be when these seismometers or when this seismometer is placed on the surface and we start hearing the sounds of Mars itself. Yes, and um, measuring the the movement
0: within the planet, which is uh, something they 're looking for the the seismic activity or or whatever is happening beneath the surface We, we, we just still don 't know really what goes on inside mars we 're still learning about our own planet and what it 's yeah. doing yep. uh, so uh, it will be very exciting once once they get down and dirty literally uh, with the, with the planet Mars through the insight. Uh, project, so well, we'll keep an eye on that. But uh, yeah, it is, it's It's quite a, uh, exciting and fascinating to be able to see and hear what's happening on other, other places, other planets, which we've been able to do over the years uh, with the technology advances. Um, you know, I, I can imagine in the early days when they were first looking at pictures coming from Mars and pictures coming from Venus and, and that sort of thing, it must have just been mind-blowingly thrilling. I think it was. I think it still is, though, Andrew. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a whole new wave of information, isn't it? OK, we'll get back to that because there'll be a lot to tell in the future about uh, what's happening on Mars through InSight. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and astronomer Fred Watson. Zero, Space nuts. Now, Fred, to an audience question. This one comes from Andrew Mitchell. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for uh, sending us your question. Uh, he was listening to a recent episode where we were discussing um, the comet Wirtanen. Uh, now, he says, Fred made an offhand comment that the coma of the comet is a plasma. I was very surprised by that. I'd always assumed it was just dust and water molecules boiled off uh, the comet by radiation of the sun. Obviously, there's something new for me to learn, and I'd love Fred to explain more about the coma and what creates it and what it is. Thanks so much. Oh, P.S. I fully expect that you'll both be doing the show in five years, and that I'll be listening as soon as it comes out. Keep up the good work. I didn't know it was good work, but thank you, Andrew.
1: Appreciate it,
0: and I hope we are too. Yeah, yeah. But me um, too. yes, the the coma plasma what's going on
1: so so that's right so um essentially uh, exactly um you know uh, uh, exactly as we've heard in what you've just read out uh the comet is basically a uh, an icy object which is laced with dust and when it gets near the sun the sun's radiation influences it and the, the bottom line is that the ice sublimes uh, into a gas and the dust is released. And so you get actually this coma. The coma is the, uh, the word means hair. It's just like gives it a hairy head. Uh, the uh, coma is the, the 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 fuzzy bit that surrounds the nucleus of the comet. It's what you usually see. Uh, the tail is the coma that's being blown away by the radiation pressure of the sun. Uh, and um, what happens uh, is that the, um, the sun's radiation in particular the the um the ultraviolet light from the sun and also to some extent the subatomic particles that come from the sun they start knocking electrons off the atoms that are making up this gas uh, and in particular you know most of what's coming off is h2o it's it's the the ice turning into h2o vapor uh, so there's this sort of photodissociation it's called that separates the atoms into hydrogen and uh, oxygen and then you start getting the um, the uh, electrons knocked off uh, to ionize these these uh, materials these elements and that is basically what a plasma is it's an ionized gas uh, and that so the the tail itself is pushed away um, sort of, you know, by the uh, the solar wind. Um, it, it, it's, it's probably that you know the solar wind plays uh, a role in the fact that the tail uh, of the uh, of the plasma points in a different direction from the dust trail. That's the point I'm trying oh, to make. Okay. Some comets have two tails, yes. one of which is the plasma tail being pushed away by the solar wind, the other is the dust tail, which is just being left behind basically, right. uh, and they're both illuminated the, sun, the, the, the dust tail is, is illuminated by the sun uh, in the same way as what we call the zodiacal light, that's the, the light uh, caused by dust particles between the planets, which you can sometimes see after sunset or before sunrise. So the two tails are formed by different processes, but ionization is certainly an important process. Um, just as a footnote to that, there were some uh, interesting experiments done uh, carried on board. the. Uh, you remember the Rosetta spacecraft that investigated Comet 67P, yes. Churyumov-Gerasimenko, which you and I talked about at great length. Um, the University of Uppsala in Sweden had a plasma experiment on board that, which uh, uh, I think did a lot of work on on looking at the uh, complex structure of the plasma coma because it's not it, it's not a simple thing. You know, we tend to think of these things in fairly black and white terms, but actually there there are real subtleties um, uh, about this. Um, maybe I can just read that because uh, it, it says the. Uh, the, the, the department in Uppsala contributes one of the instruments on board the Rosetta Orbiter, a kind of weather station known as a Langmuir probe. Together with other instruments in the Rosetta Plasma Consortium, we, sorry, we investigate the ionised component of the gas oozing out of the icy nucleus, how it interacts with the dust from the comet and the ever-changing solar wind. Um, at other comets, the environment is known to structure itself into several regions with different properties, from Rosetta, we are already learning that this picture is very simplified as we follow how the comet environment changes with distance to the Sun. Okay. So it, it's complex stuff, but um, very interesting. And just a footnote on Wertenum, um it's... Uh, we are approaching the time when it's, in fact I think yesterday it would, was at its closest to the sun that's the 12th of December uh, it will be closest to Earth on the 16th of December, unfortunately the moon's getting pretty bright mm. uh, but it is going to be worth a look if the skies are clear, I had a look last weekend with binoculars uh, and I did find the comet but it was incredibly faint, it was very very difficult to see, certainly nowhere near naked eye brightness, partly that's because its its coma is relatively large it's the size of the full moon in in the, in our sky and uh, but it's very diffuse so uh it, i could only see it in the binoculars and these were reasonably decent binoculars um 7 by 50 i could only see it by averted vision which means you look to one side and your the more sensitive part of your retina sees the faint image of the comet
0: ah okay well there's there's a handy tip for anybody who wants to to try and have a look at it
1: yeah because
0: um everyone tends to just look
1: directly at things um, that's right and yeah sometimes that's not good enough not not the best way Mm. um it, it it is not that easy to find um you need to go online and check there are many finding charts or finder charts to let you see exactly where to look i was looking in what I knew to be the right place, and sure enough, I did find it. But it was very, very faint. So,
0: in a few days, how visible
1: will it be for people? It'll be much the same. It'll oh, be. Okay. It'll be. Um, it will be brighter, I think, but it will not be glaringly obvious in the night sky. Okay. So, without binoculars, you'd be struggling. Yes, I think so.
0: Mm, all right. And if you're lucky enough to have a telescope, yeah. Hey, that's even yeah. better.
1: Mm. See, that's
0: all right. Uh, Andrew, thank you for the question. I hope uh, hope we covered the, the answer for you adequately. And I've uh, got another email during the week I want to share. And um, all jokes aside, we, we do love it when we get a bit of feedback that just makes our chests puff up a bit and uh, this one came from patrick healy thank you for making this podcast i truly look forward to it every week just wanted to let you know that's lovely patrick thank you very much we appreciate it um it inspires us to make one more episode
1: <laughs> or maybe a, maybe two <laughs> maybe two more,
0: maybe two more. <laughs> we'll keep going uh fred thank you so much it's been a pleasure as always Great pleasure to talk, Andrew, and we'll speak again soon. We will indeed. Astronomer-at-large Fred Watson, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you again, and we'll catch you next time on Space Nuts. Space
1: Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from sites.com.